0: Welcome to the Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This week's theme is Animals, and Alan and I will be curating a mixtape centered around the beasts and critters on land and sea. Welcome back, Dave. Welcome back. Uh, i tell you what, this is the most eclectic
1: list of songs that I have brought with me for any show to date. So... Um, It's going to be a really interesting show, I think.
0: I I had mine like strictly Generation X. I really, there were enough to choose from. And I kind of hit that sweet spot for us, at least, which was the early 80s. But then I found some others that I wanted on the list. And so um, this was the most difficult for me to choose my my 10 and my alternates. Hmm. So I decided that I'm going to let Chance choose them.
1: Chance. Now, what do you mean by that?
0: I have here a little bucket <laughs> with one through fifteen in it. And I have fifteen songs, all of which I would like to see on the mixtape. And so chance will determine which ten could be more, of course, if we match. Sure. Appear on our show. Huh. Now that is a very interesting take. Um, I don't know.
1: I, I came in today thinking this may be the first time we don't have matches, but I've you know, I, I could be entirely wrong by that. So um what were, what were your criteria this time
0: well I, you and I agreed ahead of time that we would do no birds because we might do a bird episode correct so birds were completely out of the, out of the question uh, I said animals can, it can be literal or metaf- metaphoric um, I know you mentioned you thought most of yours were literal animals they were initially and, and some of them were like um, novelty songs I don't think I have any mo- novelty songs okay and I have a few that are literally animals but most of them are, are metaphoric um, and it can be used um, you know as a title or nickname even. All of mine also had the animal's name in the title. Okay. Didn't have to be that way. I just, I, I, like I could have chosen At the Zoo from Simon and Garfunkel, which is on my list for a while, but I decided I, I just, for consistency's sake, all of mine actually have an animal listed. Um, what about yours? Well, I, I began, uh,
1: creating the list. I, I, I did, um, at first decide I was going to go very literal. The songs had to be about animals. And, and I, I had a very good list of ten animal songs, uh, very literal songs, uh, as well as my alternates. But then, after speaking with you, and we we determined that metaphor was um, equally, you know, uh, available to us to use. Um, I did remove two of my literal, uh, move them to the the alternate list, and replace them with uh, songs that are not. Strictly about about animals. Not all of mine uh, have an animal in the title, uh, so I, I do differ with you
0: in in that respect. See, I could have had another three dozen if I right. So um, it helped me reign by having an animal in the title. It really helped me reign in my choices.
1: Yeah, and well, and keeping it literal at first anyway. That that made it far easier for me. Uh, once once we opened the door to metaphor, uh, I tell you, what, I, I looked at my list several times and and just.
0: <laughs> well, I'd be. Curious. I, I don't think I can find ten literal. That's the thing. I, I'll be curious to see if we differ on our definition of metaphor, or I'm just missing a whole swath of songs from the the hmm. last forty or fifty years. But I just I, I I wouldn't be able to come up with ten. I don't think. I mean, maybe you went back further with some of the fifties stuff, but I just I couldn't find them.
1: Okay. Yeah. I um. no as I said, my my list was literal at first. Two of the songs that I had on there moved to the alternates list, and I. I replaced them with songs that uh, are our are, are, are metaphor, but um, I don't know, You we both read into songs probably far more than we should, but y- you may disagree and think they are, meta- it'll be an interesting discussion. Okay. Oh, one, one other thing, I, I very intentionally, and this was, this was probably the hardest part of, of creating the list, uh, I did not repeat any animals.
0: So I didn't either. The, no, the, I didn't do that. Yeah, yeah.
1: So um uh, the 10, you know, the the 10 that I brought in. Uh now there there are a couple of repeated animals in my alternates list. Um but that was probably the, the the most difficult uh thing for me because I I learned very quickly we could do an entire uh episode on dogs, wolves, um Uh, and and horses I mean that the three of them again I'm trying to
0: think now and again I'm talking songs with literal animal in the title so I can't think of more than one song like with a wolf or you know what I'm saying so maybe it's because you're you're not including animals in the title that's why you're able to come up with a bigger list is that the case possibly okay because I I didn't have that problem of having too many animals okay uh, to choose from so we'll see it'll be interesting uh, speaking of animals, do you, you have you still have a dog? Correct. I, I do. Echo. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's been around a while, right?
1: Uh, yeah. She is. She. she. Uh, well, she just turned twelve. Um, and yeah, she's she's still sprightly. Still thinks she's a puppy. Uh, she's going to live long, which is very unusual for a black lab. She's going to far outlive. We've always had labs, except for um, we we had a beagle when I when I was younger, but
0: Princess, um, if I yeah, remember correctly, yes.
1: Um. But no, I, the past uh, past three have all been Labradors, and, and she's going to far outlive the, the previous two. Um, I, I do think, though, that uh, when she's gone, we're going to take a break for a while. I've, I've never not had a dog, and honestly, there have been long stretches of my life where I had more than one at a time. But uh, it, it's just, I'm, I love having a dog in the house. Um, I, I wouldn't trade it for the world, but it gets so hard putting them down. Um, you know, watching them uh, grow old, putting them down. And it's also very inhibitive. I mean, it's very difficult for us to just take off for the weekend um, because increasingly, as I've gotten older, we, we have fewer options, fewer people that can watch her, let her out, uh, take care of her for us. Um, so I think we're going to take a break for a while, but I have no doubt that, you know, I will have a dog again before before two two. Long. So,
0: and and you. Well, if if any listeners out here also listen to my other podcast, the Movie Day podcast, you'll know that I hate dogs. So <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I hate. To, I am neutral toward dogs. I don't hate dogs. I, I think dogs are incredibly loyal. I really respect the bond that people have with dogs. Um, and so I'm fine with that. I shouldn't say that I hate them. I'm very neutral. I, t- to me, the maintenance, the, well they, they smell and they drool and you have to take them out. <laughs> and you know, basically you might as well have another kid if you're gonna have a dog, in, in my opinion. True. Uh, I'm much more of a cat person. Um, I have had a couple lap, lap cats. One of them, unfortunately, passed away. And like you say, it's very difficult. And boy, that was, you know, I knew it would be difficult. I had no idea how, how emotional it would be for me and for the family. Um, they were They were from the same litter, so we still have the other cat. And she's still holding on, although, you know, she's 16 years old and going on 17, so probably not for too much longer. And that's going to also be really difficult. So I think I'm with you. I think this is probably as much as I love cats and, and love having them around, and I think they're a great stress reliever for me. I think we're probably going to take a break, too, because it is difficult, like especially when they get older, to, to go away. You have to have someone come in and watch them and right. feed them and you know we want to travel and stuff so i'm just going to have to visit people that i know that have cats so i can get my cat fix
1: (laughs) now see i'm i'm not a cat person i um i we've we've had cats um a couple of times but um yeah i'm i've never never been really a fan I, i won't go so far as to say that i i hate cats but definitely uh prefer the dog um I don't know there's just something about the the excitement, uh, you know, when when you come home. I could be, I could just go on a five minute errand, and I come back, and she,
0: you know, she is so enthusiastic. You would think that I had been gone for a week. And that would annoy the, the crap out of me. Really? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I like the cat. I'll sit down, and my cat will will aggressively run towards me and jump on my lap. I'm fine with that. But hmm. I, when I walk on the door, I need a little bit of space. I don't need something slobbering on me. <laughs> Yeah, Fair get, enough. Receive hate mail from all the dog lovers. I will
1: there. say that I wish I was half the person, half the man that my dog thinks that I am. So, you know, dogs, you, you, they're unwavering in their loyalties so here, right there. Um, but, yeah, no, I, you know, I, well, I remember, though, you had a dog.
0: Years yeah, well, now. my, yeah. My, Pippin. Growing up, yeah, well, a Maltese, a little dog, you know. Yeah. I mean, a little dogs are fine. Again, I'm really, like, emotionally neutral. I mean, sure, I would love the dog growing up, but... It, it's it's a little bit different, I think, with a smaller dog because they're not as smelly and noisy and, and they don't jump on you as much. I mean, they do, it's just they don't do as much damage with their claws, you know.
1: That's true, but you can't get on the ground and wrestle with them either, so.
0: No, nor do what I ever want to <laughs> <laughs> Nor Nor would I want to wrestle with my cats, frankly. Nor anybody, now that I think about it. But.
1: Well, and, okay. I guess
0: that, I'm not just out of the wrestling that, ilk.
1: That is fair, <laughs> so. All right,
0: well, that's that's our little little animal discussion. Yes, uh, we don't have anything more exotic. No turtles or. No. Nope. Uh, I had a hermit crab once. But. I had a hamster
1: growing up. Tried to have fish a few times. They always died on me. But uh, yeah, no. I've always been a dog person.
0: So who's who's whose turn is it to go first this uh, week?
1: Makes no difference. I, I think
0: it's mine. I think you went left first last time, didn't you? Um, I, I you need don't to remember. do a better job. Of we we that. do. I guess. It um,
1: doesn't. Up to you. Either one of us can go.
0: All right, fine. I'll I'll go with my little box here. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull a number, and that's gonna be my first choice. Leaving it up to the fates. All right. Number three. Number three. So, my first pick is From The Who. Okay. You probably already know one of my insect choices mm-hmm. from their uh, second album, 1966. Well, if you were from the UK, it was called A Quick One. Uh, apparently, that was too controversial for America, so they changed the name to Happy Jack. Which you could make a case, well, whatever, it won't go there, but uh, it's (laughs) several albums. Actually, there's there's another album on my countdown that had a different name in the US and in the UK. But anyway, uh, it was the Who's second effort. The song is called Boris the Spider. Yes. Boris the Spider. And uh, it was actually the first song written by Who bassist John Entwistle, uh, largely considered by by many, many people to be the greatest rock bassist of all time. Uh, unfortunately, he has passed away. On their first album, um, Pete Townsend wrote all the songs. And when the second album came around, you know, he just kind of wanted the whole band to share the load. And uh, the record company even offered uh, 5,000 or 500 pounds to any other member of The Who who was willing to write a song. And so, uh, you know, John thought, OK, I'll give it a crack. And uh, this is probably my only literal song on the list because he literally he was terrified of spiders as a, as a child. And he just had this idea of writing a song about a spider that meets an untimely end. That's basically all there is to it. Um, m- musically, it's got a really interesting, you know, bass line, as do most two songs. Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it, it it's The closest thing I think you could say to a novelty tune, it's not a true novelty tune, but it really isn't to be taken seriously, and it became a part of their live shows. It's a very popular song in the the Who catalog. Now, unfortunately, because I've chosen this, I can no longer use it in my Halloween list <laughs> that I'm assuming we're going to have in, in October. Oh, without question. It would have been one of my Halloween, but I had to find a way to get, you know, a couple insects on here, so I chose Boris the spider.
1: All right. No, it's a great choice. Um, all right, so my first selection, um, I, it's a bit uh, bit different than what I think some people may be expecting. but. I oh, it 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 is without question one of the greatest soundtracks. You hear it and you know to get out of the water. Oh, okay. So I went with the main title, actually it's so main, you, main title and first victim, I went with
0: Jaws. So you, you actually went beyond pop pop music then. I did. Yes. Is it was this a single? Is that why you No, it wasn't a single okay. I, just, I didn't uh, know we were allowed to do that.
1: Well, we, we never said
0: we couldn't. I suppose I picked Spongebob as an alternate, so well, that's true. I guess we're even.
1: Yeah, no, I um I don't know, I was making my list, Jaws was not on it originally, this is not one of the ones that replaced, I mean, Jaws is fairly literal, um, well, but I... And there's I, no
0: lyric to it, I didn't know we were allowed to do instrumental songs. Oh, of course we are. Wow, look at that, that opens up a huge... Okay, go ahead.
1: How, how quickly you forget <laughs> Hendrix
0: and the Star Spangled Banner. That's sure. true, you're right, you're um, right.
1: No, but I, you know, I I don't know, I was just, I was crafting my list and uh, for whatever reason, I, I just immediately, you know, the light bulb went off and... and i just thought let's go with jaws i it is john williams genuinely made a soundtrack for the great white i mean it's forever going to be associated with the shark um and you know you i can still vividly recall the very first time i saw chrissy watkins skinny dipping you know at the beginning of the film and you know the shark rising from from below um John Williams composed the film score, of course, which earned him an Academy Award. It was his second win and his first for original score, um, and the, the the score is ranked the sixth greatest by the American Film Institute. Uh, the main shark theme, though, it, it's a simple alternating pattern of just two notes, um, variously identified as either E and F or F and F sharp, and it became a classic piece of suspense music. I mean, synonymous with approaching danger. Williams described the theme as, as grinding away at you, just, just as a shark would do, um, in, instinctual, relentless, unstoppable, and, and the piece was performed on tuba, and w- when asked why the melody was written in such a high register and not played by the more appropriate French horn, Williams responded that he, he wanted it to sound a little more threatening. But when Williams first demonstrated his idea to Spielberg playing just the two notes on the piano, Spielberg was actually said to have laughed, thinking it was a joke. Williams saw similarities between Jaws and and pirate movies as well so at other points in the score he he evoked pirate music which he called primal uh, but but fun and entertaining but you know there are various interpretations of of the meaning and the effectiveness of the primary music uh, theme Um, some suggest that the two note expression mimics the shark's heartbeat others argue that it suggests human respiration but, but the score's strongest motif is actually the split, the rupture, uh, when it dramatically cuts off uh, as after Christie's death. Um, and And the relationship between sound and silence is also taken advantage of in, in the way the audience is conditioned to associate the shark with its theme, which is then exploited toward the film's climax when the shark suddenly appears with no musical introduction. Um, but no, I, I just for me, the the theme to to Jaws was just, Again, it was not the first thing that came to mind, but when, once I imagined it, I, I couldn't let it go. So. All
0: right. Well, that works. Yeah. Great, great movie. One of my favorite films, too, oh, as well. Absolutely. All right. Pulling out another number here, folks. I'm still going to be disappointed when I don't get to talk about the ones that I want to talk about. <laughs> number four. Wow. Consistency here. Number four. Okay. Uh, well, you know, we've mentioned on the on the show that I'm a fan of alternative music. Sure. Uh, especially alternative music of the late 80s and, and then uh, the early 90s. Uh, one of my, my favorites um, is The Cure. Mm-hmm. And there are actually a couple songs that I could have chosen. There's Love Cats, which is a great tune. Right. Uh, but I actually went with uh, The Caterpillar. Oh, okay. Uh, which came out in 1984 from uh, the album The Top. And, and this song is kind of significant, too. It's It's the only single from The Top. And, you know, if you... It followed the Cure. You know much about the Cure's history. You know they started out in in, in the late '70s, early '80s, and they were kind of a, a post-punk gothic band, and, and they kind of maintained that identity throughout their career. But you know, after their third album, their their third studio album, which was called *Pornography*, it was just a. It, it's my favorite album from the Cure, but it is very very dark, and I think it just got to the band members, and they they basically split after that tour. And everyone just kind of assumed that The Cure was finished. And, you know, Robert Smith and and Lil Tolhurst, uh, who were, you know, school buddies growing up, they were still, still remained friends. And somebody challenged them, basically challenged Robert Smith to write a happy pop song. Says, you've proven you can write these dirges and and, and these really atmospheric type, ominous songs, but uh, can you write a pop song? And so he wrote a single uh, called uh, "Well." See, it was kind of an EP, and they had a few singles. But um, uh, but the walk was the American version of some of those efforts. "Let's Go to Bed" uh, was one of the songs. Yeah. But then right after that, he basically played all of the instruments except for drums on this album that came out, full length album called "The Top," and it's really a kind of a psychedelic pop album. And I mean, it's such a departure from 1982's pornography to 1984's "The Top." maybe m- the most dramatic shift, I think, for any band is definitely in a, in a two-year period. Yeah, you bring up a good point. And after the success of the singles beforehand and this album, um, he, they began to collect members again. And then the Cure grew to what used to be a, a trio, uh, well, at one point, actually, four, to, uh, you know, post the top. They ended up having five, six members at, at one time. So, yes. But they, they continued to maintain that gothic, uh, uh, you know, I guess got, uh, identification, but then they all always included the, the pop sensibility as well. Um, so you have your Friday's I'm in Love and Just Like Heaven's, but then of course there's all sorts of other, especially on an album like Disintegration, you're gonna have a lot moodier stuff as oh, well. Yeah. The video is extremely memorable too if you've seen the the video it was filmed at the uh, great conservatory in london uh, like a lot of their videos it was directed by tim pope and it's just uh, a light airy like i said psychedelic pop tune and uh, that's my chance to look i got both insects in in the first two choices i yes, got you my did. i got my caterpillar and i got a spider
1: very nice well i have i do not think i have an insect represented so you you uh... You know took care of that for me (laughs) so all right no i am all right my my second song is called hippo song and it's by al stewart um al stewart he he was a british singer songwriter and folk rock musician um he Mm -hmm. wrote he rose to prominence as part of the british folk revival in the 60s and 70s um and, and he developed a unique style of combining folk rock songs with delicately woven tales of, of characters and events from history. Um, you know, Stewart is actually a key figure in British music, and he appears throughout the the musical folklore of the revivalist era. Uh, he played at the first ever at Glastonbury Festival in 1970. He knew Yoko Ono before she, she met John Lennon, and he shared a leaden flat with a young Paul Simon. Um, but Stewart, he, he's best known for his 1970 single, Year of the Cat. Um, you know, the title song from the, the platinum album of the same name. Here he trades cats for hippos, and, and hippo song, it was featured on the 1993 album Famous Last Words, and the song was never released, so it may be new to many of our our listeners, but there can't be many songs about a conversation with a hippopotamus, which is what the song uh, entails. Um, one is tempted to feel sorry for the hippopotamus, because uh, although the creature, well, I should say, you know, you maybe we shouldn't be. Um, Because although the creature may look ungainly, it can move at speeds of up to 19 miles per hour on land. It also kills more people in Africa than any other wild animal. Um, Stewart's hippo, though, is a friendly hippopotamus, and and the tuba uh, on this track does a fair impression of its ungainly waddle. Uh, The conversation is fairly one-sided, though. The hippopotamus is sharing how difficult his life is uh, to the song's narrator, who lacks empathy and is unmoved by the hippo story. But then the hippo gets the last laugh because the last line of the song reveals that following his death the narrator is reincarnated as a hippopotamus. Um so perhaps he should have been a better listener. But um no it's it's a really it's a really cool tune. Uh it feels like a novelty song.
2: It's not. <laughs> surrounded by a large hippopotamus and nine of his friends who declared quite a lot of us a feeling rather blue and we don't know what to do i turned away but the large hippopotamus said that his pit of despair appeared bottomless yet i are not supposed to cry i said my my other people's problems do get tedious by and by. My, my. you can never solve them. Oh, no matter how hard you try.
1: No, I, I just thought, let's go for it. And Hippo Song is my second and choice. We
0: have a potential artist match, depending on how okay. Chance treats us here. We'll see. All right. It may or not have been the song that you mentioned there, which is one of my... F- If I had to make a top 10 favorite songs from the 1970s, that's on it.
1: You're the Cat? Yep. 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 No, it's a fantastic song.
0: All right. Let's see here. My next number is number 12. Down to 12 here. And that would be (laughs) You're the Cat. By Al Stewart, 1976. And you already mentioned a little bit, so I'll continue and just kind of tag team off of what you said. Sure. Um, Yeah, I say, it's one of my favorite 70 tunes of all time. It was uh, recorded at Abbey Road Studios. It was produced by Alan Parsons. And uh, really, it's just a folk ballad. And I think Alan Parsons was probably the one responsible for bringing in some jazz influences and mm-hmm. some jazz arrangements, and and just a variety of instruments. And really, you know, I don't, I think of it just kind of as a, a short pop song, but it's like over six minutes. Oh, it is, and very, very long. Lots of different solos and lots of different, you know, lengthy swaths of, uh, you know, instrumentation, and it's just, it's one of those where it, it's a solid song, but it has that pop sensibility. It's like, like. I have a short list of, like, perfect songs. It's like a perfect song. A big lyric person, but you know, it's just kind of a kind of a tragic tale of a, a tourist who misses his bus because he follows a local on a on a romantic adventure. Yep,
1: yep. No, it's a great song. I I, I almost went with Year of the Cat, but I, I opted for hippo song because I had cats represented elsewhere. No, we have an artist face-off coming. I'll probably defer to you, um, just because it's it's better known. I think the audience would would appreciate some you know established.
0: Well, but this, I'm interested to hear this. I've never heard of this the never hippopotamus the hippo song. Songs? So okay. um, it'll be definitely a good one to put on our alternates. Oh, absolutely! Um, playlist.
1: But um, yeah, one as we discuss, you know, both will will appear, you know, yep. here on the on the episode. Um, all right, my third. This is one you know, uh, and shouldn't be too surprising. I went with the lion sleeps tonight. Okay. By the Tokens,
0: which um, was forever ruined for me by Lion King. <laughs>
1: Yes. Um yeah, you know, this song is everywhere in pop culture. Um Lion King is a is a great example. Um but the Lion Sleeps Tonight it was originally a hunting song sung in Zulu, um in what is now Swaziland. Um the original title was Mamube, uh, which means lion. And, and the original song was popularized in the nineteen thirties by South African singer Solomon Linda, who recorded it in nineteen thirty nine with his group the Evening Birds. Um, Linda recorded the song in Johannesburg, uh, South Africa, after being discovered by a talent scout. And uh, The chanting on the record was mostly improvised, but it was a stroke of genius. And um, Released on the Gallo label, it became a huge hit across South Africa. Then around 1948, Gallo sent a copy to Decca Records in the U.S., hoping to get it distributed there. But folk singer Pete Seeger got a hold of it and started working on an English version. Um, Seeger thought that they were saying, "wemowe." Uh, in, on the original, and that's what he wrote down and how it was recorded in English. Um, but they were actually saying Uyimbube, uh, and, and you know, spelled, it, it's a crazy spelling, uh, U-Y-I-M-B-U-B-E, which which means, uh, in Zulu, you're a lion. And it was misheard for Wimawe because the way it was pronounced, uh, again, Uyimbube. Um so entered the tokens they, they auditioned for legendary record producers Hugo Peretti and Luigi Creatori um by singing Cigars Wimowae to them and Peretti and, and Creatori they they were impressed by the performance but they decided that the song needed new lyrics so with the help of George Weiss the two rewrote the song giving it the title The Lion Sleeps Tonight and and the tokens thought that this had just been nothing more than a, an elaborate audition because who was going to buy a song about a lion sleeping um, what was their general sentiment but they were so embarrassed with the new title and lyrics that they fought uh the release of the recording they didn't want it released um it was scheduled to be the b-side of another import a portuguese song that they recorded uh in the same may 1961 session called tina um but legendary well legendary disc jockey murray the k he actually pushed tina but once a New England DJ started playing the B-side on the air, "The Lion Sleeps Tonight" just started its climb to the number one position, and it eventually hit the top of the charts during Christmas of
2: 1961
0: I would almost um, consider that a novelty song, though. That, oh, it's it? Yeah. Oh, it definitely yeah, a novelty, too. Yeah.
1: But again, very literal. I, sure. There's a lion no, that, that, sleeping. That, 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 that's literal. Outside that the jungle. So.
0: Yeah. 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 REM has a song, uh, too, off of um, The Sidewander. Yeah. yeah. The Sidewander Sleeps, in, which is kind of a riff off of that as well. Yeah. that's um, oh, it's a great song. Automatic for the people. Yeah. All right. Good choice. Even though Lion King ruined it for me. <laughs> Did you see the new Lion King? The, the live action. Yeah, yeah, I did. I didn't see it.
1: Um, it. It's it's okay. I think Disney needs to give it a rest. I think they're ruining the the legacy of their animated films the more that they yeah, they yeah. do this.
0: But all right, I have number eight. Number eight. So let's see what number eight is on my list, and that is all right. Crocodile Rock by Elton John. Uh-huh. Uh huh. It's one of those that I, I think just people are going to expect absolutely Um, it's you know probably I don't know if it's overplayed but I mean it's one that everybody knows not not enough for me to say this is the song we should definitely not pick and so uh, I threw it on there it's not one of my favorite Elton John songs but it's a lot of fun
1: it is yes
0: and as much as I don't ever consciously listen to it if it comes on the radio or someone's playing it I always have fun listening to it Mm mm-hmm uh, came out in 1972. Um, it was uh, eventually included on the album Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player, but it was a single before that. And it, it's kind of his homage to early rock and roll. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, a lot of the critics said it was very derivative and they, they kind of panned it. And he said, that's kind of the point. It's supposed to be derivative. You know, it's not it's not really a parody. Of early rock and roll, but it's his homage to early rock and roll. Mm -hmm. So yeah, he's going to take all of the cliches of of the late 50s and and early 60s and put them into this song. And it's it's very unlike anything else Elton John ever recorded. Oh
1: yeah, it stands apart without
0: question. And uh, it was uh, its first number one uh, song, stayed at uh, the top of the charts, uh, the Billboard charts for three weeks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, prior to this, I mean, Elton John was so prolific in the early 70s. It was not uncommon for he and his band to release two, three albums a year. From between about 1970 to about 1975, 76, and you know, I always I forget that all the times so I'm, th- I'm thinking this song is a little bit later, you know, in his in his catalog. But uh, it was it was pretty early in '72. So right after this is of course uh, "Goodbye Yellow Brick Road," which was a huge double album. Yeah, it's my and, favorite by him. Before this was "Honky Chateau," which had "Honky Cat" and uh, "Rocket Man," and of course before that, from his self-titled album, he had uh, "Your Song." So. You know, he was just churning out, you know, churning out the hits for for the in the early '70s. Yeah, right? he was. And this one was one of the biggest.
1: fairly confident you were going to have that. Yeah, week. I had to. Um, no, it's, it's a great song,
0: you know. It, it's one of the reasons why I decided to do the numbering system because it, so many songs went back and forth to my alternates list depending on what mood I was in. And I said, boy, this isn't really fair. Like, like a quick, quick peek into next week, it's complete opposite. I know my ten. Oh, Money? Yeah. Yeah. I I, I know my ten, and I know my five alternates, and I don't question it. But this one was just all over the place. Yeah,
1: I agreed. Um, No, it's a great choice.
0: And and It also has a little bit of a memory for me, too, because the first time I heard the song was on... The Muppet Show. Oh, okay. Elton John guest starred on the Muppet yeah, yes, Show. Yes, he did. And yep. one of the segments, of course, was Crocodile Rock. Uh, it's kind of a kid friendly. It's another one of those that I put on my kids, you know, CD mixes mixes that I made for them. Sure. But uh, I just I distinctly remember he's wearing one of his outrageous, you know, feathered costumes with the large glasses, and there was a a Muppet crocodile that was, you know, hanging around. So. <laughs> It's probably on YouTube somewhere. I should look it up. Oh,
1: no, it's, it's a fantastic song. Not, not one of my favorites by Elton, but I, you can't help but not love the song. So, no, it's a it's great choice, and, I, yeah, I fully expected you to, to have it I mean, And I could
0: have list. put in, you know, like Skyline Pigeon or some of the more obscure animal songs that maybe... But, again, I'm trying to walk that line between having a few obscure ones that maybe people don't know that I really think they should listen to and songs they kind of expect right. on a playlist for animals. You could have
1: went Gray Seal.
0: You know, Grace Seale is another pl- one. Plenty yeah. of songs out Great there. Great song, yeah.
1: All right. Well, my next one, I am really, uh, we're, we're, we're flying back in time. Um, it's, in, it's Jazz Standard by Nat King Cole, and it is titled Straighten Up and Fly Right.
0: You familiar with the song? I thought we weren't doing birds.
1: Well, but it's, there is a buzzard, but it's the story of a monkey
0: as oh. well. Okay, all right, all right. On okay. the monkey technicality. Yes, okay. on the
1: monkey technicality. Um Cole, he was born in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, but four, at, at four years old, his family moved to Chicago, Illinois, where his father Edward became a Baptist minister. Um Cole learned to play the organ from his mother, Perlina, uh, who was the church organist. And he began formal lessons at 12, learning jazz, gospel, and, and classical music. At, at 15, Cole dropped out of high school to pursue a music career. And after his brother, Eddie, who was a bassist, came home from touring with bandleader Noble Sissel, they they formed a sextet and recorded two singles for Decca in 1936 as Eddie Cole's uh, Swingsters. Um, In 1937, Nat King Cole moved to to L.A., where he found work playing piano in nightclubs. Uh, A club owner asked him to form a band, so he hired um, bassist Wesley Prince and, and guitarist Oscar Moore, and they called themselves the King Cole Swingsters, after the nursery rhyme in Old King Cole Was Merry Old Soul. Uh, But soon, they changed their name to the King Cole Trio, and the trio proved incredibly popular, and they they recorded under the Decca and Excelsior labels before signing with Capitol Records in 1946. Straighten Up and Fly Right um, is a 1943 song written by Nat King Cole and Irving Mills and performed by the King Cole Trio. Um, the song was based on a black folk tale that Cole's father had actually used as a theme for one of his sermons. Um, and the song was based, uh, you know it, it is. It's, it's African folk folklore. Um, the, the tale, the story itself, that there's a buzzard, the bird as you as you mentioned, who takes different animals for a joyride. Um, and then when he gets hungry, he throws them off on a dive and then eats their, their dead uh, bodies for dinner. But a monkey who had observed this trick goes for a ride, and um, he wraps his tail around the buzzard's neck and gives the buzzard a big surprise by nearly choking him to death, refusing to to be dropped uh, you know, from the sky. Um, it, it was the trio's most popular single, reaching number one on the Harlem Hit Parade for 10 non-consecutive weeks, and then the single also peaked at number nine on the pop charts.
2: Buzzer took a monkey for a ride in the air The monkey thought that everything was on the square The Buzzer tried to throw the monkey off his back The monkey grabbed his neck and said, now listen, Jack Straighten up and fly right Straighten up and fly right Straighten up and fly right Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top Ain't no use in diving I what's the use of jiving? Straighten up and fly right. Cool down, Papa. Don't you blow your
1: top? I don't think there's a jazz musician who has not done a cover of the song, but it's it's just a it's a fun it's a fun number, and you know I had to get the monkey representation in there somehow, and. So there, there you go. That can go.
0: Great choice, and you made me realize that I was indeed wrong. I did double up on animal because I have two monkeys on my list. Do you? I do. That's okay. So we might have a barrel of monkeys here. On <laughs> I will
2: list.
0: forgive you. All right. So all right, good choice. Going back, going back on that one. All right. Let's see here. I'm gonna really make sure these are mixed up well. Number ten. Number ten on my list. I'm having to use my laptop because my printer broke, of all things.
1: Uh, I'm almost out of ink. I need to buy ink. Printer broke.
0: All right. Well, number 10, uh, we'll stay in the, uh, I guess, African tradition here. Okay. And uh, this is a song by R.E.M., which came out in 1986 from an album called uh, Life's Rich Pageant, Uh which to me is kind of like their their Revolver uh, album. Um, it's kind of a transition from the earlier college rock days to a more diversified and experimental style that would kind of blossom into their radio friendly um, REM stage of their career. Oh, yeah. Actually, there were a couple um, songs on this album I could have chosen, uh, but I went with Hyena. Okay. So we'll keep in sure. with the Africa thing here. Uh, Stipe was uh, was reading, actually, kind of going through Aesop's fables at the time he wrote this. So it's kind of accounts for the uh, fable type animals symbolizing uh, marauding power. If you're not familiar with the song, it's basically a metaphor for the nuclear arms race and for uh, nuclear assured destruction. Uh, you have lyrics like, you know, the only thing we have to fear is fearlessness. I love that kind of turn a phrase because we're used to hearing the only thing we have to fear is fear itself sure and he changed it to fearlessness um the bigger the weapon the greater the fear and so he uses this idea of the hyena and the hyena's role in in the jungle and his relationship with other animals to kind of build this metaphor for um especially obviously we still are concerned about you know blowing up the world but this time in 86 i mean that was kind of the height of some of the Cold War tensions that have been building, you know, since the 1950s. Right. We talked a little bit on our Fourth of July episode with Rocky Four and, and how that Cold War, Cold War patriotism, I guess, came out. And so this is a kind of a different way—a a, a song uh, not basking in the patriotism of the Cold War, but instead um, trying to provide a, 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 another warning. There are lots of warnings, lots of musicians. Um, created different works of art to try to, to warn people from getting to the point where we all just blow ourselves up. But uh, this is a good example. It's not a, not a single and, and a lot of people may not be familiar with the song if you're not a, an actual fan of R.E.M. But uh, it's, uh, it's great stuff. <laughs>
1: Okay, so my next song, uh, again, this is one of the literal uh, uh, for me. Um, The next one is The Unicorn by the Irish Rovers. Um, I I told you last week, I think, that I had one mythical creature Mm -hmm. here. Um, The the Irish Rovers, um, they were a group of Irish musicians that that originated in Toronto, Canada. Uh, They formed in 1963, and they named themselves the traditional uh, song, um, The Irish Rover, uh, they're best known, uh, um, I have no memory of this before our time, but apparently they, they had an international television series, um, and and contributing to the, uh, they contributed to the popularization of, of Irish music in North America, and without question their most famous song was The Unicorn. Uh, the song is based on the biblical story of Noah's Ark, and it explains that the unicorn was not a fantastic creature, uh, but an animal that literally missed the boat by not boarding the ark in time, to be safe in the great flood. Um, according to the song, they were the loveliest of all animals and, and a favorite of God, but unfortunately, they were too playful and silly, which caused their, their own demise. Uh, the lyrics, you know, they, they go, then Noah looked out through the driving rain, them unicorns were hiding, playing silly games, kicking and splashing while the rain was pouring, oh, the, oh them silly unicorns. And then you know there were green alligators, long-necked geese, some hunting back camels, some chimpanzees. Noah cried, "Close the door, because the rain is pouring, and we just can't wait for no unicorn." Um, w- what seems to be a traditional Irish folk song, though, was actually written by a Jewish guy from Chicago, and he's he's made an appearance uh, on our on our show before, uh, by the name of Shel Silverstein.
2: All right. Yeah. So
1: yeah, the unicorn was actually a Silverstein poem and song. Uh, the Irish Rovers, though, uh, their version climbed the charts to become a top 10 hit in 1967. And the song features a, a, just a simple, lovely melody. And, and the group's ethnic sound, you know, it makes it that much more more magical. Um, the song re- actually remains popular as a sing-along for both children and adults. Uh, there are hand gestures, from, from what I'm told, for each of the animals represented. And it's still, I, I've seen this, f- uh, you know, in first person, it's still frequently played in Irish pubs.
2: A long time ago when the earth was green And there was more kinds of animals than you'd ever seen They'd run around free when the earth was being born But the loveliest of them all was the unicorn There was green alligators and long-necked geese Some humpty back and some chimpanzees Some cats and rats and elephants but sure as you're born the loveliest of all was the unicorn. Now God seen some sinning and it gave Him pain, and He says, "Stand back! I'm going to make it rain." He says, "Hey, brother Noah, I'll tell you what to do: build me a floating zoo."
1: Yeah, I went with the unicorn. Uh, pick number five
0: yeah good choice yeah I didn't even think about mythical and well, I mean last week we talked about Puff the magic dragon right which at the moment you brought it up
1: I, I <laughs> had not thought about it. it it's on my alternates list but um yeah but I I don't know I'm thinking about saving it because I figure we'll probably do a, a an episode on drugs at some point All
0: right <laughs> so uh, number eleven number eleven for me and that is aha I've been waiting. I've been waiting to get Steely Dan on my list. Oh, okay. And uh, and not only is this a Steely Dan song, but it's it's on one of the greatest records ever recorded. Yes. Um, it came out in 1977. It's a song about alcohol. Um, it's a drink. No, it's a drink. It's a drink. It's a milkshake. It's yeah. a milkshake. Oh, about yeah, alcohol. Yeah. Yes. No. Yes. It's,
1: yeah. It's, that's true.
0: We're talking about black cow, black cow here. Yes. And had to, it, with, had to retrace the lyrics for whatever reason. I thought well, probably the, the, because every other song by Steely Dan is about, alcohol, about alcohol. So you yeah. know, that's yeah. that's not a far it's a great song. A far leap there. Uh, Asia is just notorious as being like one of the greatest. Well, it won a Grammy for the for the best uh, engineered non classical album. And you know, they they, they were so they meaning Donald Fagen and, and and Walter Becker were so were such perfectionists in the studio. I think I might have talked about this earlier in one of the episodes where I, I think maybe two albums ahead of this was Katie Lied, and they were actually so disappointed with the production, they put a, an apology on the back of it. Um, Asia, they were just, I mean, they would bring in like the greatest jazz session musicians to record a song and then basically fire them all because it just wasn't the sound they were looking for. And they would bring in an entirely new crew, and they would, but. You know, you can argue if it paid off or not. For me, it paid off because, and I'm not a huge jazz fan, but I really like the jazz-pop-rock fusion thing, and I love it in, in small doses. And some people claim that Steely Dan is very sterile because of this, because they're so precise, because everything is so perfect, that there isn't any life, there isn't any warmth in their music.
1: I I'm, I'm a huge Stilly Dan. Becker and Fagan are fantastic. If you're if you're looking at it as a jazz because I love jazz. If you're looking at it, you know, purely on its jazz leanings, yeah, it's it's pretty it's very conservative. I mean, jazz tends to have that explosive free nature, you know, just the, the jam session. Right. Uh, it's very free form. Um so in that respect Stilly Dan is they're they're a bit overproduced, you know, from that perspective, but Oh, I love Steely Dan. So.
0: And, and the song has been interpreted about a number of things, uh, a, a troubled relationship, uh, an ode to self-doubt, a uh, commentary on nightlife, which really could be said for every single Steely Dan song <laughs> Without question. ever written. I think all three of those apply for just about every single song. But uh, Fagan did say that the black cow is a drink depending on, on what soda fountain you visited and what part of the country. And he and. Walter Becker, growing up, were huge soda fountain fans. Yes. Um, a black cow could either be a milkshake or it could be like a Coke float. On the couch. You mentioned last week too, there were a couple of songs you chose that were actually B-sides that became hits and yeah. and this is an example it didn't become a hit, but it was a b side to josie mm-hmm. um, but it it became a fan favorite pretty quickly and uh, it appeared on on both of their greatest hits compilations was a live staple for when they did actually tour oh yeah and it, and just as an aside, my my wife saw my list in preparing for this, and she made a, a snarky comment about how you can hear it about every hour on yacht rock radio <laughs> they, they do play this and a lot of us you with Dan. On Yacht Rock Radio, but if you have an opportunity to, to pick up Asia or listen to it on Spotify, just from the beginning to the end, put on a pair of headphones, about 45 minutes, and you won't regret it. No, it's it's
1: one of their crowning achievements, um, the album from start to finish.
0: So although it's not actually about a cow, it's about a drink, the, the word cow appears in the title, and that fit my criteria. There you go.
1: All right. Well, my next pick um, is Little Red Riding Hood. Um, now i went with an updated version uh and I'll, I'll get to that momentarily but but let's give credit where credit's due um you know literate riding hood it of course it's a it's a retelling of the fairy tale um with the lead singer portraying the wolf um and in this context uh the wolf is preying on, on the little girl through lies and deception in an attempt to win her favor and take advantage of her um this is one of the ones that I said I, it is metaphor. This right. was not originally on my list. Um, written by Ronald Blackwell and produced by Stan Kessler, this was the second big semi-novelty hit for the Texas band Sam the, Sh- Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. Uh, their debut hit, which you actually named last week, was Woolly Bully, um, which made its number two. Um, Sam, whose real name was Domingo Samudio, uh, he developed his act in the Dallas area, where he played local dances for a teenage audience. And um, with the Pharaohs, he became a comedy act, touring in a hearse and wearing turbans and Egyptian garb on stage.
0: Um a culture appropriating everything. Uh, yeah. It was a different time. Oh,
1: yes, it was. Um, the group actually had female backup singers who were known as the Shamettes. And when Little Red Riding Hood took off, the group's record label, MGM, actually had the shamettes release an answer song called hey there big bad wolf which i never knew i I actually uh went on youtube to hear it it's it's pretty wild Uh, i'm positive spotify does not have this i mean it is really obscure um what spotify does have um is the version that i went with i did not go with the original by saying the sham i actually went with a cover version by actress amanda seyfried um and and it's oh it's it's an acoustic wonder Seyfried's vocals are are soft and and seductive which which add a heightened eeriness her version i mean it's lovely but it's also really unsettling um it, it feels very hypnotic it, it, i would even argue it feels a bit sinister i mean there's something about her soft vocals and the acoustic nature of it to take what was a novelty tune by sam the sham and it really turns it into a menacing um you know it, it sounds like a femme fatale i mean from start to finish it's just a fantastic number so yeah,
0: looking forward to hearing that all right your turn all right All right. And yeah, I have number number nine. Number nine. Number nine. <laughs> number nine on my list is. it's the Beatles, I'm going to laugh. <laughs> another monkey song. Monkey, okay. And again, I told you I'm trying to stay, I was trying to really stay in the Gen X wheelhouse for this right. one. Yeah, and so I, I went with Shock the Monkey. Peter Gabriel. From yep. Peter Gabriel. Uh, Peter Gabriel may appear elsewhere on this list. Okay. But not as Peter Gabriel.
1: Uh, someone has the Lamb Lives Down on Broadway. Could, I,
0: I I might. Okay. I might. Um, 82. Uh, it, it came off of his fourth solo album. He had the strange habit of naming every single one of his solo albums Peter, Peter Gabriel.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. So
0: this is Peter Gabriel 4. It actually had it, I said there was another song that had a different name in the U.S. Uh, in the U.S., it was named Security. But the official name is Peter Gabriel yes. 4. Yes. Um, the song was, and we've talked about a lot of these, it was really propelled by its rotation on MTV, mm-hmm. um, in the early eighties uh, and had, it had such a unique sound that you didn't hear on radio at the time. Right. You know, I mean, we talked a little bit about how some of these progressive acts became pop artists and they pulled some of that progressive nature of their music into it. And this is a, a perfect example of that. Oh yeah. It's not a progressive song at all. It's a tight you know, little song, but it really kind of... Has some of those characteristics of prog rock, in a in a it tight does. package. Oh yeah, um, I remember just you know, at the time watching the video, and I was kind of mesmerized by it because it was so primal and strange and nymph for young me. Basically, like I just I, I loved it. I liked the song, but I think I liked the video better. Um, so well, I always tuned in. for His, it. his
1: videos were fantastic. Oh I mean, yeah, Sledgehammer was just in, in big time. I mean, he. Yeah, he had some of the most creative videos in the early years of MTV.
0: I actually owned a VHS of all of his videos from the 80s, uh, and it was in stereo. This was so, I'm thinking this is probably like 1987 or 19, probably right after so is when I bought this. Okay, And I actually, after Christmas, got, a, or asked for a stereo VCR because I wanted to be able to watch the videos mm. in stereo. Now, I think how quaint that sounds now, but I was so excited <laughs> because does. I got a stereo VCR. You are dating yourself, yeah, Gen X. So excited! Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, a lot of people, you know, try to interpret what the song is about. A lot of people assume falsely, according to Peter Gabriel, that it's about animal testing. It's not about animal testing. Uh, some people thought it was about the Stanley Milgram ex- experiment, which later on in the next album, and so uh, there's a song called They Do As They're Told, which is based on the right. Stanley Milgram experiment. See, experience. I always
1: thought that was the, the inspiration for the song.
0: No, he says it's simply about jealous love, huh. about how um, okay. jealous love brings out a, a primordial type of you know, anger, whatever. We, kind of like we go back to being the monkey. We de-evolve we no longer use our intellectual composure as human beings makes sense when that that real basic uh, jealous love comes out
1: plays a lot of uh he plays loosely with a lot of animals in the song and he he starts using them as both noun and verb he has uh, you know that 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 long section no it's a great choice i actually um for a while it was on my list um and then i i I took it off because i decided to go uh with with knacking cole but no it's a great song fantastic um all right so uh my next song we are going to the early '80s. I'm finally in Gen X here, so go me. Um, it's it's pure rockabilly. Um, it's you know, rockabilly is generally fast-paced. It's a guitar-driven style uh, with origins in the American South that combine the elements of country and western,
0: rhythm and blues genres. I know what song you're gonna play. Yeah,
1: it's it's often played with an acoustic bass and typically uses slapback echo on the on the guitar and vocals. And, you know, the pure standard for rockabilly to this day would be the singles from Sun Records. You know, uh, Elvis, Carl Perkins, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, as well as a few other artists on, on other labels, such as Gene Vincent, Eddie Cochran, Johnny Burnett. Uh, original rockabilly was short-lived, though. Uh, it was born in 54, and the music had virtually disappeared five years later, withered by death and personal disasters and commercially-minded career detours by the artists. Um Rockabilly was gone before it ever really had a chance to go anywhere, but uh, its legacy and and power, uh, pose and rock cat style, was never completely extinguished. In the late 70s and early 80s, the jitterbug ethos was was twitching again, and if you weren't around, um, it may be really hard to understand the rise of the stray cats. Um, and I
0: love this song, and I'm so angry at myself for not even thinking about this song. Uh, this one didn't even cross my radar. I don't know how I missed it. Huh. Love this song. Yeah.
1: It, the Stray cat. It, you know, it's as if the Stray Cats arrived in a tail fin time machine, <laughs> complete with pompadours and tattoos and Eddie Cochran licks. Um, that a rockabilly trio could, could top the MTV stable in 1982. You know, the, the same 1982 starts with leg warmers and synthesizers. Um, would seem not merely unlikely, but impossible, but... Brian Setzer, Lee Rocker, and Slim Jim Phantom defied logic, and they ushered in a rockabilly rockability revival that that still thro- thrives today. Really, uh, their signature song—no, you know, what I've been, you know, and Dave guessed it—I'm uh, sure a while back. Uh, their signature song was "Stray Cat Strut,"
0: which I think was their second single because right. "Rock, this, Rock Town this Town" was their first breakthrough. First, yeah. Right, uh,
1: "Stray Cat Strut." You know, it's it's an irresistible slinky jazz ballad, and it features a Setzer guitar solo. Uh, ranked by Guitar Player magazine as one of the top 100 of all time, uh, the song climbed to number three in early 1983. Um, you know, it, it, it preceding it was was the single "Rock This Town," and immediately after, Stray Cat Strut came "She's Sexy and Seventeen. Um, that that trio of hits really guaranteed their legacy, and 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 the rockabilly genre uh, was here to stay. Um, the music video, I don't know if you remember the music video.
0: For oh, Stray I do. And I was going to mention, too, the, the upright bass, great upright oh, yeah. bass part, too. Oh, it's fantastic. If I remember, I think they're kind of, they're not dressed as cats, but they're outside like, right. someone's window playing. And yeah, and she keeps throwing things at throwing them. Throwing things them at to them,
1: yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, it received extensive airplay on MTV uh, during the channel's early days. And, yeah, it consisted of the cats uh, performing in an alley uh, to dancing Kittens, we'll call them kittens, and swing dresses with lines that define their daddy-o status. Um, this one is actually, I would argue, it is literal. I, you might argue it's metaphor, but um, you know that they take first-person account as cats. I mean, the lyrics say, you know, I don't bother chasing mice around. I slink down the alleyway looking for a fight, howling to the moonlight on a hot summer night, singing the blues while the lady cats cry. Wild wow, stray cat, you're a real gone guy. I wish. I could be as carefree and wild but I got cat class and I got cat style.
2: With my tail in the air. Shrink catch, John. I'm a. I would be like Casanova. Hey, man, that's Get a shoe thrown at me from a meat, old man. Get my dinner from a garbage can.
0: I don't know. I took it very literally. You could make an argument for it. I always thought it was kind of taking the whole, uh, I suppose, 1950s uh, West Side Story type gang. Okay. Culture,
1: which makes sense, and
0: comparing them to cats in a very literal way, mind you, right? Um, but that I think both interpretations work. Yeah, it.
1: yeah. No, I. You know, this was actually the very first song I wrote down, and I, I just I knew from the beginning. No, that's a great choice. Yeah, extra. I would
0: definitely put that on my list. Good one.
1: All right, your All turn. Nice.
0: Pull a number, number from the box here
1: i love the randomness
0: of uh, <laughs> your, your choices this week I just, it's a cop-out number two number two and number two on my list is a horse with no name
1: that is a partial match it's one of my alternates so. all right okay
0: uh that song uh of course well i shouldn't say of course by america because a lot of people then and today confused the song for a neil young song yes they did Um, Neil Young at the same time this is 1972 we're talking and this is America's debut album it was their first single it was their biggest single it went to number one for three weeks and ironically it knocked out Neil Young's Heart of Gold gold. which was also at number one yeah it um, it's funny there's a lot to say about this song I mean supposedly it was inspired by a desert painting by Salvador Dali and a horse from an MC Escher sketch
1: really? now that's not what I found in my in my research yeah Um, well i America, that you know, they were actually formed in England by, by sons of U.S. servicemen who were stationed there. Um, what I found, and what I had always thought, was um, you know, basically it was titled, uh, it was originally titled Desert Song, because Burnell wrote it uh, based on the desert scenery that he encountered when his dad was stationed at an air force base in santa barbara Cal- county California. we got different sources then because yeah, yeah okay, mine talked about really and, interesting
0: and the fact that too that it was actually banned on a lot of stations because they felt it was, oh, it was about an a, a heroin actually because because yes, horse, horse is a is slang, a slang uh, for yeah, heroin right uh, he said uh, he mean the writer um and i figured, uh, dewey what's uh, do well, forget his last name now but uh, uh, Burnout, yes, Burnout. Um, but uh, you know, he said, "No, it's just a metaphor for wanting to get away from it all. Um, you know, from, from moving to a peaceful place, even if it's just kind of temporary." Um, but of course, the the song is, is panned quite a bit for some of its lyrics.
1: Well, I love the line, "The heat was hot." The heat was hot.
0: <laughs> it's great. Uh, there were plants and rocks and birds and things. In fact, Randy Newman uh, famously said, "It sounded like it was written by a kid who thought he took acid." <laughs>
1: That's a great analogy.
0: So yeah, it is. It's it's a strange song. And it's always one that I thought, boy, I must be missing something here because the lyrics are so basic that it just must have this overarching, you know, meaning that I'm just not familiar with. You right. know, you know how that is when you just feel like you're not cultured enough to get it. Yes. Well, it turns out, no, I was cultured enough, just fine. But you know, for as basic as it is. The story is very
1: ambiguous and very confusing. Yeah. Um. You know, to this day, when Burnell is asked, you know, why did the horse have no name and why after nine days did it did you set it free? He has absolutely no answer to that. In fact, he said he prefers the the, the colorful interpretations of fans versus anything that he could have come up with.
0: Now, so. it would make sense if what, what I found that he said that it was basically about getting away for it all for a while. Yes. It'd be like a vacation, you know, you go on a vacation for a week and then you you let it go, you, you come back to civilization. <laughs> I just thought, yeah, they probably had no clue. <laughs> yeah. And he even admitted that they were not, they weren't trying to copy Neil Young's sound, but but they definitely were inspired by Neil right. Young's sound. This is the, the point in, in, in Neil Young's career where he was doing a lot of the acoustic, like um, Heart of Gold and Old Man, um, those types of songs. And so, yeah, they admit that it, it's kind of an homage to Neil Young, but a lot of people still confuse it as a Neil Young song. Oh yeah,
1: I, so many. And you know it was a last-minute addition to the album. Um, they uh, they were going to go with "I Need You" uh, as the single, and they decided that they wanted something else. So they actually went back in and recorded the song last minute and made it uh, you know a, a last stitch uh, addition to the album. Um, but no, I, it was one of my alternates. So it's got
0: pr- kind of a great partial. rhythm. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it's maybe one or two notes the entire song as far as the rhythm goes and the chords. It's just really. Very simple. Yeah, just very, very simple. Very simple. Okay. All right. Now,
1: my next uh, choice is by Stevie Ray Vaughan. So I went with some blues here. Um, It was from his debut album, Texas Flood, and it is a cover of Buddy Guy's playful adaptation of the nineteenth-century nursery rhyme, "Mary Had a Little Lamb." Um, You know, it's it was just an unexpected track on Texas Flood. Um, the arrangement allows Vaughn to, to croon in a lower register, and it mixes a funky 8-bar verse with 12-bar instrumental call-and-response courses, chock-full of low-end Muddy water style riffing. Um, Guy's version had... Uh, Buddy Guy's version, the original, had horns in this immaculate Chicago rhythm section. Um, Guy was free to experiment in the studio for the first time since the late 50s, and uh, he utilized a fierce economic sensibility you know, on every solo, and his vocals achieved a similar sense of barely controlled clarity. Um, Vaughn's cover, it, it mirrors Guy's original note for note in an obvious homage uh, to a beloved inspiration, but Vaughn's delivery is very tongue-in-cheek. I mean, it, it pops in contrast to the more traditional roadhouse blues of the the remaining tracks um, on the album. I, I suspect Vaughn uh, chose to record the song more for the the of joy of the guitar part than for any conceptual reasons, but... Uh, his lower register also allows him to sidestep comparison with Guy's very impassioned falsetto stoked vocal, which was a wise choice. But yeah, Mary, Mary and her, her lamb, you know, they're, they're groovy as hell when, when the story is told with bluesy licks. <music>
2: This was white as snow, yeah. Everywhere the, went. You know the was sure to go yeah.
0: that's my favorite Steve Ray Vaughn album uh, Texas flood's an absolute classic
1: yeah. oh and mine, mine as well I in step is a close second um but yeah no I I, I just it's another song that I had from the very beginning again literal I mean nursery rhyme of course but I went with Stevie Ray Vaughan and I had never wavered he has been on my list from the from the get-go
0: great choice it's going to be a very eclectic mix it is. this is good very much all right I think I have two more choices if I'm not mistaken yep mm-hmm, mm-hmm. number seven number seven my number seven is Karma Chameleon okay the match
1: no, it was on my alternates list for a very long time, and then I, I removed it. So
0: again, for the reason of of really wanting to keep just zero in on Gen X for my mm-hmm. choices. No, okay. I, absolutely. Um, this was just one of the definitive songs of the '80s, especially specifically <laughs> the early '80s. Uh, it went to number one. Also for three, we've had a lot of songs that went to number one for for three weeks. Right. Um, by Culture Club, you know, British band, from their album, uh, their second album, "Color by Numbers," so 1983 is that when that one came out. It um, it's actually one of the best selling globally, one of the best selling singles of all time. Mm-hmm. True, and uh, five million copies glo- globally it sold, and that's and, and just crazy. Um, Boy George, who's the the lead singer and the and the primary songwriter, said the song's about being true to yourself and not changing for others. Uh, Not pretending to be someone you're not. So not being a chameleon, being yourself. Yes. Or else, you know, karma will come back and get you, that kind of idea. Um, Actually, I don't know if you knew this, uh, Jimmy Jones felt that Boy George ripped off Handyman. Handyman, yep. And Boy George, you know, he was aware of the song, but he said, if I did, it wasn't uh, a conscious decision uh, to to rip that song off. They did settle outside of court, though. I think there was some type of thing, Yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, and the rest of the ca- the rest of the band was uh, reluctant to record it because yeah. they thought it was way too country western. Yep, which I guess it does. I never really thought of it as a country flavored song, but it yeah. makes sense.
1: George I from what I remember he uh, he was having an affair he had a r- romantic relationship with a, a fellow member of the band yes his yes, name that's is escaping me but um, they he would often when writing the lyrics he would communicate you know to uh, you know to, to his lover uh, through lyrics and the line you're my lover not my rival from the song actually was you know meant uh meant toward their relationship as well. Yeah, the video, though... You yeah, know, the
0: Mississippi uh, paddle boat.
1: <laughs> it, is, it is so laughably, you know, historically inaccurate, you know. You have this multiracial group in the 1800s on the Mississippi. Okay, local, Hamilton did, did on, the same thing. Well, no, they did, they did. Um, <laughs> Culture but, Club did it first. But, but Boy George himself is just an anachronism. Yeah. You know, he's sitting there in his full garb. And um, yeah, that they the, the ship, the paddle boat that they get on was actually uh, called the... Um, the SS Chameleon, right. and uh, as they're loading to get on, if I remember the video correctly, um, you know there was a thief who was stealing things from everybody, and then later in the in the video,
0: it's like a pickpocket, and then he has to yeah, walk the plank. Right. He has
1: to walk the plank because four people playing poker discovered that he's been stealing. Um, no, it's a great song. I, I, I did for a while have it on my alternates list, and then I, I let it go when I moved two of my previous ten, you know, to the alternates, So Karma Chameleon. I had to say goodbye to it, but no, it's a great choice. It's it's
0: probably my, if I had to put, I wouldn't say top five favorite 80s songs, but if I, if I were in charge of a time capsule and I had to choose five 45s to represent the early 80s, this would definitely be one of them. Oh yeah.
1: Now, was I the only one as a child who thought, in my mind, I always imagined punctuation because I swore they were saying comma, not karma, you know? comma, comma, comma. I, I, I
0: Simply because of MTV and you could read the title. I don't know that I okay. uh, confused it. Yeah,
1: I, hearing it on the radio, I think I heard it before I saw it. And for whatever reason, I always thought it was comma, chameleon. I, you know, It's like my, Schoolhouse
0: Rock is yeah, now on, right. on the air. And,
1: you know, 10-year-old me, I could not figure out, you know, how punctuation <laughs> played a role in the song. Um, no, it's it's a great song. You know, Dreams of Red, Gold, and Green. So, what's not to love? All right, my next song. Uh, I went with now this is one of the, w- once we opened it to metaphor, this one just immediately made made the list. Um, and it's not the version that people are going to be expecting. I, I went with Hound Dog, but I did not choose Elvis Presley.
0: You went with uh, Mama Thornton. I right? went with
1: Big Mama Thornton. Yeah. Um, and if you'll allow me, I, I'm gonna, I wanna use this kind of as an opportunity to kind of talk about.
0: Culture uh, appropriation? Exactly. Yeah, figure.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, Hound Dog, it's a 12 bar blues song. Uh, written in 52 by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. Uh, they wrote songs for everybody in the 50s, uh, You know, probably the most prevalent songwriters of the era. Uh, they were two Jewish songwriters from, from Los Angeles. Um, and, and musically, Hound Dog says something about, it does, about the connections and the differences between rhythm and blues and rock and roll. Um, Presley made the song famous, but it, it wasn't written for him. Uh, the song was written specifically for Willie Mae, Big Mama Thornton. She, she was a brazen vocalist who performed with Johnny Otis's band. And um, Thornton was a songwriter herself. Um, her, her ball and chain would eventually uh, land its way into Janis Joplin, Joplin's legendary repertoire. Um, but after two releases that didn't chart, Otis asked Lieber and Stoller to write Thornton the hit single she, she deserved. And after hearing Thornton rehearse several songs, Lieber and Stoller forged... The tune to suit her brusque and, and really badass personality. Um Thornton, she was an incredible blues singer with a with a great moaning style, but it was as much her appearance as her as her blue style that influenced the writing of Hound Dog. Um Lieber and Stoller told her to growl her way through it, which which she does. Um and, and you know it uses a black slang expression, referring to a man who sought a woman to take care of him. Um, so that opening line, you ain't nothing but a hound dog, it, it was a euphemism, right? Um, the song, you know, it's a southern blues lament. It, it, it's the, really just the tale of a woman throwing a gigolo out of her house and out of her life. Um, but once Lieber and Stoller, they, they heard Thornton's vocal chops, they, they actually wrote what would become her signature song in just 12 minutes. Hound Dog was written in 12 minutes. And it, in its original form, it was really, it was written for a woman to sing uh, in which she Berates her selfish exploitative man, and you know she expresses a woman's rejection of a man. Uh, the metaphorical dog in the title. So her, her big voice R&B recording, you know, it remains really the very best version of the song, I think. And you know, in live performances, she often introduced the song with a typical blues uh, non-rhythmic call and response uh, with the with the guitar before settling into the first verse. Once the song gets moving, the guitar, still in typical blues fashion, you know, it continues to answer Thornton with a fill after every line. And during the extended guitar solo, the roles are reversed, and the guitar carries the melodic burden while Thornton provides a vocal fill. But, you know, Hound Dog, it was Thornton's only hit. It it sold over 500,000 copies uh, and and spent 14 weeks on the R&B charts, including seven weeks at number one. But her recording of the song is... You know, it's also listed as one of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. It was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in February 2013. You. This is why I've always considered it a tragedy that the most recognized version of the song came from Elvis Presley. And a lot
0: of people don't even know about this version. Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, yeah, Presley he recorded it as the B-side to a single "Don't Be Cruel," and in contrast to Thornton's modest success, Presley's version of the song would become one of the best-selling singles of all time. It spent 11 weeks at number one, and for many, Presley's version stands as the definitive recording. You know, but but sadly, like like you said, much of Elvis's audience had no knowledge of. Thornton's original recording Uh, he usurped the song essentially and reduced Thornton to a footnote in the annals of of music history Um, now Presley's rock and roll rendition you know I'm I'm, I'm a Presley fan so I'm not just blasting him here Um, you know the the rhythm and blues influence is still apparent the account is still the accent uh, is still on the backbeat and you know the electric guitar continues to provide the primary counterpoint to the vocal melody, um, but the differences are apparent from the start. There's no blues introduction. The pace is more up tempo. The rhythm guitar it, it provides a more driving rhythmic frame for the vocals, and you know a snare a snare drum roll announces the transition from chorus to verse. And the bass line is typical of a hundred rock and roll songs of the era. So it's not really that novel, you know, given given the history. But his performance at the of the song on the Milton Burl Show in June 1956 was largely responsible for his own lasting legacy. Uh, you know, it was during that performance Presley abruptly halted an up-tempo rendition of the song with a wave of his arm and then he began to vamp in half-tempo with a slow-grinding version, you know, accompanied by his exaggerated thrusting. And, uh, you know, the reactions of young women in the studio audience were overly enthusiastic.
0: Well, it was made famous as depicted in Forrest Gump as yes, well. Yes, yes.
1: Right. Um, yeah, that performance was in large part responsible for the burgeoning anti-rock and roll sentiment of, of politicians and church leaders. And of course, network television refused to film Elvis from the waist down on subsequent live performances. But yeah, Hound Dog, I, you know, it, it both exposes and questions the cultural complexities of authenticity and ownership in 1950s rock and roll. And it is often cited as, as the most illustrative example of white appropriation of African American music. Um now I don't say that, you know, taking aside necessarily, but I, I I wanted to include her version because I want our audience to hear her version.
0: Sure. I would have done the same.
1: And you know, I, I'm I'm confident that most people, as you said, they they have no idea who she is and have never never heard her version of the song.
0: So. And I'm not a huge Elvis guy. I mean I respect some of the stuff and there are a few songs that I like um, you know, but Elvis, I'm a big singer songwriter. Yes. I, I, trust me, I, I really admire people that can sing and you know vocalists that, that are unique and there's nothing wrong with that being your prime. but there's just something about being the singer songwriter and not having the greatest voice, um, but having it come from your soul because yeah. of the song that you wrote. And so that's why I'm always more of a Beatles person than right. I am an Elvis person. It just seems like Elvis. They, they, you know, you're right. He was the whole package. He had the it, it factor, um, but everybody gave him the material, and he did well in you know marketing that material. He was he was a genius at that. But it's just why I don't necessarily get into his stuff as right. much.
1: Now Elvis, you know, he's he without question he he's hugely important to to the to the genre. I mean he. Prior to this, there were black radio stations and there were white radio stations. Black singles were called race records, and white teenage audiences never heard them. Right. Um, you know, Alan Freed and, you know, he, Cleveland got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because Freed in Cleveland, Ohio, played the race records on his radio station. But yeah, Elvis, you know, he, by, by, and, you know, you can say he appropriated the music, but by singing what was considered race records, to a white audience um, you know it, it really it was it was one of the really first uh, attempts to try and uh, unify uh, the, the the races and um, you know it did it, it it was an outlet because suddenly African-American artists you know they their record started selling higher and, and greater numbers um, you know Elvis even he he had a hard time because once uh, he started really recording his singles White radio stations wouldn't play him because they said he sounded too black, and black radio stations wouldn't play him because they said that he sounded like a hillbilly. So you know, he he himself did, you know, have some difficulty. It's funny.
0: This week, actually, I had a discussion with my daughter. She's she's twenty one, and you know, we we have a lot of political discussions, which is kind of kind of cool. And we were watching something on YouTube, some early rock and roll, and I said, you know, I said rock and roll is such a great symbol for racial harmony. I said, because yes. you know you have the rhythm and blues aspect and you have, the, and, I, and I was trying to, I probably sound a little bit pretentious trying to explain to her <laughs> you know, how rock and roll came about, but really right. it's rhythm and blues and country western combined together and, and work together to make this whole new style of music and then she came back with a, oh or, or you mean the fact that white people stole all black people's music and made it into rock and roll so it's i can i can see opinion. both sides as yeah. well um like you say elvis and I, I think i even said that i said yeah but elvis opened the door for black artists to get heard oh, on he mainstream did. radio yes and so yeah in a way he did rip off a lot of that and and maybe denied those people their moment in the sun but it did also pave the way for...
1: Oh, it did. If I, I would argue, if not for Elvis' success, f- Chuck Berry may not have become the landmark right, artist right. That, he, that he was. Um, and Chuck Berry has even said so much, I, you know, as much. I'm I, reading his autobiog- autobiography from a few years ago, um, Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll. You know, he, he does give Elvis a lot of credit for having, you know, provided, you know, the opportunity opening doorways for, for black artists to finally have, you know, a fan base among white America. Um, but no, I, yeah, Elvis was not the singer songwriter. And, you know, if you really want to have a discussion about cultural appropriation, who does the song belong to? Does it belong to the songwriters? In which case it's two Jewish kids from
0: right, LA. Right, yeah.
1: Is it the original performer? Is it, is I it, think it's the style of the music. My know?
0: daughter would say it's the style of music. So she would say just the Jewish writers that wrote in that style was appropriating. That's, I, mean, I don't want to speak for her, but she would probably say that. Hmm. She would say, why wasn't it written by African Americans? That's their music. Why, why is the record company paying two Jewish guys to write a song when they have plenty of talent to choose from? Go to the source. Also a valid point. So. Yeah.
1: Um, no, I, but you, I'm like you, I mean, you know, hands down, you know, I'm a singer-songwriter fan, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with Chuck Berry or Buddy Holly any day over...
0: Elvis Presley. Yeah, I, that's so. one of the reasons I love Buddy Holly so much because he was one of the pioneers as, as far as yes. writing. I mean, you know, I understand, and even in country music today and a lot of other styles of music, it's not not the norm that you necessarily write your own music. Correct. Um, and that's fine. It just, I have a, I'd rather listen to a Bob Dylan who has an uncharacteristic lead vocal than somebody that has. And Celine Dion, that sings perfectly. Right. You know, just that's just me.
1: I, I have a familial connection who actually is a songwriter in Nashville. And, you know, so I... I certainly i give credit to to the songwriters um you know you don't have to write your own music i mean there, there's there's a variety of you know talent and some people just have you know the vocal prowess and you know their songwriting is not their their forte that's why we need the good songwriters even buffett's kind of
0: anomaly there because he came from nashville he's from that country tradition but he writes his own stuff and doesn't have a classically good voice
1: mostly I And mean, he he has in fact my my cousin Buffett actually covered one of my cousin's songs.
0: Yeah, so. I know. They're obviously, he, right. he does. Yeah, he, co- he does. Yeah. But, but, but it's
1: yeah. No, I mean he does
0: largely write his own music. So he has songwriters, He's writing partners. Yes. He works with yeah, people. Exactly. Yeah. All right, my last choice. All right. Number one. This is my fish song. Okay. Do you know what song it is? I have a few guesses. I don't want to put myself out there. It's it's, it's part of the the canon of classic rock.
1: Okay, the well, canon.
0: If you're if you're a generation Xer, you'll know this from classic rock. If you're a millennial, you'll know this from Guitar Hero Three: Legends of Rock. Either way, you know it. I am drawing a blank. It's got a very very similar uh, guitar riff to a song by Queen. Are we talking Barak? Huda? That's correct. Okay. Yes. Okay. Oh,
1: great! So I I love the Wilson Sisters.
0: Barracuda so. by Heart came out in 1977 from the album Little Queen, which was their second album. Yes. And again, a lot of people have tried to interpret this one, but really, and I don't want to get too specific about it, but the the record company was trying to basically came up with a publicity stunt to try to sell records, and this was their old record company. This this actually caused them to break from their old record company. And they created a rumor about the two sisters that I won't be too specific about, but you could probably guess. Yes, 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 yes. And after one of the show, one of the concerts, uh, one of the members in the crowd came up to, uh, to uh, Ann Wilson and made a flippant comment about that. And she was so enraged by it that she wrote Barracuda. I think that leads us to your last choice yes it does and we, well we had one artist face off we did not have we do.
1: We had to go back and determine how Stewart um,
0: but we didn't have a song so this is the last opportunity to match and I don't think you're gonna match I don't think so all right
1: um, all right so my my final uh, song on my my list proper it's by Jimmy Buffett and I went with God's own drunk um, yeah you know, it is a classic it's spoken word um, it's not something he sings and for those that are unfamiliar with the track, it was originally a monologue by a comedian Lord Buckley. Um, musicians have since ad- adapted it, adapted the monologue into different types of songs, and most notably, Jimmy Buffett, who first recorded the rendition for his 1974 album *Living and Dying
0: in Three Quarter Time*. And then I think the the best versions on the the live album, right? Had to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah
1: yeah well he has he has several live albums now. I don't know how well oh, he has times. a lot but
0: the the first live album that came out was in the late seventies was you had to be, was, yeah, had it was, to be there it was the
1: double l p and
0: that's a, the great version yeah. on that one
1: um buffett's version um it, it was a concert staple and even regarded really it was regarded as his his theme it was buffett's theme before margaritaville's popularity um buckley's monologue and, and buffett's rendition they, they both tell a story in the first person of a recovering alcoholic who finds himself taking care of his brother-in-law still and eventually giving in to his temptation and drinking its whiskey and then in the midst of his bender he crosses paths with a bear and uh who from the narrator's drunken perspective is a male kodiak fella about 19 feet tall um the narrator's fearlessness interests the bear, and out of mutual curiosity, the narrator gives the bear some whiskey and names him Buddy, and then the two uh, new friends, they, they drink the night away. Um, the narrator eventually passes out. He awakens to find that both Buddy and the still are gone, implying that you know the bear liked the whiskey so much that he stole the still.
2: Well, like I explained to y'all before, I ain't no drinking man. I tried it once, and it got me highly irregular, and I swore I'd never do it again. But <laughs> I promised my brother-in-law that I'd go up and watch his still while he went into town to vote. He was right up on the mountain where the map said it would be. Friends, let me tell you one thing, though, it was no ordinary still. It stood up on that mountainside like, like a huge golden oak. God Moon was moons shining on the cool clear evening God's little lanterns is a twinkling on and off in the heavens and like I explained to you once before I ain't no drinking man but the temptation got the best of me and I took a slash sure. oh.
1: although Buffett did not officially record his rendition until 74 he had actually been performing it since 1966 Um when After two friends, uh, they played in Buckley's 1959 Hollywood recording of Lord Buckley in concert, and Buffett and his friends, they were living in New Orleans at the at the time, and they were playing in a bar where the performers, all performers, I guess, uh, were actually required to do a rendition of Buckley's God's Own Drunk. So, yeah, Buffett's version is a classic, and it's immensely popular uh, among his parrothead head fan base. Uh, when performed live, and I've, I've had the, the good fortune of seeing it performed live on three occasions he doesn't play it live every time but three times i've seen him play it live um he playfully improvises in any number of ways to keep his his fans guessing so it really is a wonder to behold yeah he
0: personalizes it too you know to what city he's playing
1: so yeah i I hope the audience will enjoy this one if they're unfamiliar with the the track no
0: great choice yeah
1: all right. So, are we going to do "Here the Cat" or "Hippo Song"? Do you want to, when we deliberate, listen to both and make our decision? Because you haven't heard "Hippo Song."
0: So. I haven't. No. So,
1: um, yeah. Why don't we wait? We'll, okay. we'll determine that.
0: Well, let me go through. Let's go through our alternates, alternates So we have them yes. here. Uh, the ones that the, the fate did not choose um, from my little box here with numbers. Uh, Octopus's Garden. Okay. That's, and uh, that's uh, of course by the Beatles. Uh, Ringo. Uh, that was his. Oh, uh, well, I should say the submarine is probably his most recognizable, but uh, probably, yeah. But uh, he actually wrote this one. He did. The it, little help from his friend uh, yeah, George Harrison. Harrison
1: goes with an uncredited uh, writing. Um, yeah, he's not credited. He he helped with the guitar uh, chords, I believe.
0: And uh, hungry like a wolf from Duran Duran. Uh-huh. which is one of my favorites. Again, about the time I was becoming aware of music and going roller skating <laughs> uh, in, in late elementary school, I remember this was a staple. And then, you know, we talk about MTV videos. It had one of those videos that uh, it was it was kind of based loosely on Raiders of the Lost Ark, which had come out the right. year prior to that. It had constant rotation uh, on MTV, and um, yeah, yep. just classic.
1: You know, I, I know we still have a roller rink, uh, one right one remains but uh, do kids still roller skates? i don't
0: know no, any not, uh, not no, i don't, I don't know that any of my students actually roller skates. I think it's, a little, it's like a niche now yeah <laughs> it's not oh. a big maybe maybe younger kids it's probably a younger kids thing oh, poor
1: kids are missing out you know doing the locomotion under the the disco ball yeah so. <laughs> okay
0: <laughs> uh i also had let's see here um, white rabbit from jefferson <laughs> airplane yep uh, again i'll save that for our drug our episode drug episode yeah because believe it or not i can't believe people there's naive i mean they're credited as having snuck it past the dj's because it got tremendous airplay because nobody at least not the the man the establishment right. knew that it was about uh, an acid trip which i'm not sure how they didn't know
1: yeah I, it's beyond me i you know it's <laughs> certainly based on the it's on the you know the literary work alice's That's adventures mm-hmm. in wonderland but um which gets a bad rap. Alice is not about drugs, but White Rabbit by Jefferson uh, Airplane most definitely is. So,
0: and it's kind of based on that uh, Ravel's uh, Belario yes. and it just builds as a concert crescendo. So I yep. love that song. Great song. Uh, another band I want to get on, and it's not going to happen this episode, but Pixies. Mm. Uh, In fact, I'm going through a huge Pixie thing this week for whatever reason. That's all I've been listening to. Okay. And if you're not familiar with Pixies, um, the late 80s basically paved the way for grunge. Yes. I mean, there'd be no Nirvana without Pixies. And if you go back and listen to this stuff, it does not sound late 80s by any stretch of the imagination. Characteristic, you know, hard soft, hard soft or fast, you know, fast, slow, fast, slow type type stuff. Just really kind of grinding guitars. And in this case, strings and grinding guitars. So the song I chose was uh, Monkey Gone to Heaven. Hmm. Oh, there's your second one. Which line. was uh, off what's that? Second monkey song, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. That was off uh, Doolittle, 1989, um, which is kind of an environmental song, which also invokes biblical numerology. It's just, you got to listen to it. <laughs> Make sure you listen to it. <laughs> uh, and then the last one, we already kind of mentioned, you guessed, uh, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, which was the last album that Peter Gabriel was involved with in 1974 with, with Genesis. And he had this idea of doing this you know, huge rock opera. yes. And, you know, it, it's a double album. Unfortunately, this is where the band started to kind of split or release from Peter Gabriel because he insisted on writing all of the lyrics. And they were used to taking turns, you know, writing songs and so forth. And then he wanted to make it into a movie and spent all this time in New York and took away from the band. So this is kind of the swan song of, of Peter Gabriel with Genesis. But it's about a Puerto Rican uh, boy who, uh, from the Bronx who kind of goes on a quest through New York City and the whole album is just—it's it, incredible if you listen to it. But. Oh, it is,
1: yeah. And you know, for for all of the you know the infighting between the group, it's it is definitely one of their greatest achievements. I I I, I think I much prefer—well, not much. I think I slightly prefer Selling England by
0: the Pound, but uh, yeah, Lamb Light's not Down on Broadway. I mean, it's just—and there's phenomenal. an homage to the Drifters classic, you know, yes. Broadway. So yeah. Yeah, so those are those are my uh, alternates that did not get picked.
1: All right. Well, my alternates um, that that were not named, at least not yet, because we don't know who gets to pick from their alternate list. I had Three Little Pigs by Green Jelly. Um, I remember that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I that. I, another novelty tune. You know, it... Uh, uh, they, this and, and all the other songs on their album, which was titled Serial Killer, and Serial right, right. was spelled C E R. Yeah,
0: I think we played at the radio station, we didn't did. we? At the yeah. WFL in college. <laughs> we did.
1: Yeah, all, all the songs on their album uh, were all first released on video. And, and um, they all, uh, you know, they all had videos accompanying the songs, and you actually couldn't purchase any of their music in a music only format. So, because of that, they. The band built itself as the world's first video-only band. And of course, the video for this one was Clay Animation. The the song tells a distorted version of the classic children's story, right, with the first two pigs living a slacker lifestyle and the third, a very successful pig who summons a rambo to kill the wolf.
0: I literally have not thought of that song since 1994. Huh? I probably never I probably would have gone to my grave not ever thinking of yeah. that song it had not been for you picking that
1: Yeah, I, I well, you know, I I had it there But I didn't want to repeat animals and I already had the big bad wolf with little Red riding Hood, So three little pigs took a back seat to it. That was the one double I also had timey kangaroo down sport.
0: I had that on my early list. Did you I really did? But yeah. then I thought it was maybe too novelty, but now I know that everything's open. So yeah, we're yeah good. so, um,
1: yeah, rolf harris um you know, classic tune from the, the early 60s. Uh, the American version was produced by George Martin, mm-hmm. who went on to fame, of course, producing the Beatles. Fun fact, Harris actually performed the song with the Beatles for BBC Radio in 63. Really? Yeah. And he, he adapted the lyrics. He added a new verse that went, don't ill-treat-me-pet-dingo, Ringo. Don't ill-treat-me-pet-dingo. He can't understand your lingo, Ringo, so don't do treat me pet dingo. So <laughs>
2: Funny.
1: I, I, I would love, I'm sure it's on YouTube. I've, I've never actually seen it, but I, yeah, I would love to hear it. Um, and then I had A Horse With No Name, which was a match with you. I had uh, Stand By Your Manatee by the Nerf Herder. Oh,
0: uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. it's...
1: Uh, You know, the band, of course, takes their name from the Star Wars franchise, right, Nerf Herder. Um, But they're from Santa Barbara, California, and they formed in 1994. They they actually describe themselves as a humorous, juvenile and pop culture, uh, geek rock
0: band. Basically, they might be giants. Yeah, Yeah. well,
1: in some respect, but you know, um, they use a modern punk style. Um, It's very, it's much uh, in the same vein as the
0: Ramones. No, I'm, yeah, I'm I'm just, I meant on your description. Yes, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, and they had a 1997 single called Van Halen, which was a tribute to the band of that name, and they received significant radio airplay for that, and then they also composed and performed the theme songs of the TV series Buffy and the Vampire Slayer. Um, But yeah, here the band performs a a hard-rocking number about the plight of the manatee. You know, It's their typical fashion. The song uh, combines elements of surf rock and punk, and it really does sound like it could be a Ramones Hmm. tune. you know, the song, it remains playful, and it features humorous lines, but, uh, yeah, it remains very self-aware in the discussion about the endangered marine mammal. Um, then I had Octopus's Garden, like you. Last week, we both said it was on our lists, and then, in the end, neither one of us
0: called on it. Well, it was on my main list. Had I stuck with my 10,
1: was it? Yeah. it would have
0: appeared. but yeah.
1: It basically fell to my alternates. My my son really, really pled with me uh, to include The Lion Sleeps Tonight, oh, and, okay. which I, I did not originally have, so... Octopus's Garden it did fill. Um and then my last uh my last alternate was At the Zoo by Simon Garfield. Oh, I mentioned
0: that. So um yeah. so there you go. That's great. though a couple of these songs have, have children's book adaptations. Uh Ringo Starr in two thousand fourteen released a book uh, for Octopus's Garden. Really? I didn't yeah. know that. And Paul Simon released a book for At the Zoo.
1: Right, yeah, that I knew. He had to But uh, they had to change
0: the <laughs> yeah, the hamster line.
1: Yeah, well and not only that, but um yeah, he also the beaver in the zoo had to be renamed rum the, yeah the right the or, name, yeah the name of the beaver right. was rum because yes. you know the original lyric states that the zookeeper was
0: mildly fond, fond of, of rum, rum yes <laughs> so all
1: right so we need to decide on which uh our stewart song we're going to go with and we need to uh from there uh determine which one of us does pull from the alternates list and we will deliberate figure out our sequencing and we will be back after this
0: all right, we're back just like that. And we have made our choices, our sequence choices, as well as we had the Al Stewart face-off. Yes. And uh, Alan won that one. We went ahead with the uh, with the Hippo song, which, by the way, starts off exactly like the theme song from Curb Your Enthusiasm. But <laughs> how many songs featured the tuba? So, you know, yeah. it's going to sound that way.
1: All right. So, and in choosing that, Dave uh, went ahead and uh, utilized his... Pick of Octopus's Garden which we actually both had on our alternates list so that became our 20th song
2: I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade he'd let us in Knows where we've been in his octopus's garden in the shade. I'd ask my friends to come and see An octopus's garden with me.
1: All right, so here is our sequence for our mixtape. Side one, we begin with the main title from John Williams' score from the motion picture, Jaws. And from one fish to another, we move immediately into Barracuda by Heart. That then is followed by Boris the Spider by The Who, and then Mary Had a Little Lamb by Stevie Ray Vaughan, Hound Dog by Big Mama Thornton, Straighten Up and Fly Right by Nat King Cole into The Lion Sleeps Tonight by The Tokens, and Crocodile Rock by Elton John into Hippo Song by Al Stewart, And we end Side A, Side 1, with Octopus's Garden by The Beatles. Side 2. For Side B, we go first track with Karma Chameleon by Culture Club, Into the Caterpillar by The Cure, Shock the Monkey by Peter Gabriel, Into Hyena by R.E.M., Then Into Stray Cat Strut by The Stray Cats, Black Cow by Steely Dan, A Horse with No Name by America, Into the Unicorn by The Irish Rovers, then, Little Red Riding Hood by Amanda Seafried and we end with God's Own Drunk by Jimmy Buffett. It's a good one, yeah. It is, it's yeah. A, you know, and it's a very we we always say that we have an eclectic mix. This one is it definitely is very. I I don't know that we have any country represented, but I mean,
0: I don't know that. Well, according to Culture Club, Carly oh, Camilla true is country, but no, yeah, I mean, yeah,
1: but maybe Jimmy Buffett that yeah, early yeah, in his, that his career, would be the closest. but but yeah, I mean, it, everything else is. We have jazz, we have uh, you know, rockabilly, we have blues, we have uh, it's it's yeah that's good we have some jazz leanings in there black cow uh
0: I think I think next week is uh money by the way, and I think that's gonna be pretty at least my list is really very
1: yeah mine mine is as well but I will say it's a very it for me it was one of the easiest lists to, to compile
0: right we'll probably have a lot of matches i too. I would imagine yeah um but I have I have five alternates, so we'll we'll get through it
1: yeah I do too so I'm looking forward to it
0: all right all right so well, that's our that's our list for. Animals, animals, yes. Um,
1: I, we did not include "Beast of Burden." You know, when I was younger, I, this would be a fun show sometime too. Songs that uh, you know that people misunderstand the lyrics,
0: like you know, the, there's a book. Uh, Excuse me while I kiss this guy. Yeah, exactly. Right.
1: When I was younger, "Beast of Burden." I swear, I probably for at least the first first ten years of my life, I always thought he was saying Easter Bunny.
0: Oh, <laughs>
1: always it was Easter Bunny. Uh, so and
0: there's a. Uh, um... What well, what's the well, CCR so one? That's, oh, there's a bathroom on the right. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, Madonna has one too. Yeah, I've I've heard of the book. I've I've never seen it, but there's so many songs that people misinterpret. Rocket Man. Mis- well,
0: and Elton John. It's really difficult with his enunciation. Uh, yes. Oh yeah. And, and Rocket Man one that's always. Yeah. Of course, I always <laughs> interpret it as just being nonsense. I don't actually hear anything that I shouldn't hear. It just sounds like right. Ghibli gook to me. Yeah,
1: uh, Elton can be very difficult. to to understand at times. All right. Well, it is time for our soundtrack segment of the show where each of us presents the other with a scenario and we on the spot determine the song that is playing in the background.
0: Yes. Pressure, pressure. All right. My turn to go for. I think you went first. Yes. My turn. Okay. You are the seventh wheel at a dinner party full of couples that keep calling each other babe and baby and all that disgusting stuff. You look down at your text messages and you discover you've just been dumped for the fourth time this year, Ellen. Fourth time. Okay. We're assuming that you're not happily married. This song plays in your head as you close your phone. Oh, that's easy. I think I'm going to kill myself by Elton John. Good song. Yeah, <laughs> it's just definitely not a song that would be able to no, be no. played today. Cause... No,
1: but it's it's uh, what you're describing just sounds like a literal hell. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm going to kill myself by Elton John. Um, Okay, you ready for yours? Yep, yep. All right. You are singing at the top of your lungs in an attempt to deliberately embarrass your children as you drop them
0: off at junior high school. What song are you singing? Oh, man. <laughs> there are a lot that I could choose from. <laughs> um, boy, I want to purposely... I, mean, I could go the route where it's a song that they, that they would know, like one of their songs. And that would really embarrass them because mm-hmm. not only am I singing, but I'm singing to... To that song. Um, I don't know. I, I'm going to go with the classic uh, Guilty Pleasure of Mine, oh. Dancing Queen from ABBA.
1: <laughs> that would do it. Yeah, yeah I, I would say that would do it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, again, please like us on social media. Please uh, leave us reviews, five stars on uh, Apple Podcasts. And uh, please tell your friends about our show. We, we are continuing. We, we hope to continue to to grow our audience and we're hoping that you do enjoy the the episodes that we've delivered to this point um again our show is sponsored by Jake callahan painting serving the greater cleveland area and you can find Jake callahan painting on facebook please do consider them for all your painting needs um next week we are going to again uh focus Cha-ching. on money 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 is the theme next week uh the root of all evil so it'll be really interesting what we what we come up with on that that one I think we're going to have a lot of
0: matches it, it, it's one of those playlists that I got to look through and I'm like oh this is going to be fun to listen to
1: yeah no I, I agree um, and the songs came so easy yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it was not like this week money I, I I listed 10 and I was immediately sure that I had it ready to go so um, that will be next week's theme anything to add I think that's it all right Well, we thank you for joining us again, and we look forward to next week. Uh, Until that time, uh, we hope you've enjoyed yet another episode of the Gen X Mixtape.
0: That's right. Hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk. Another mix of memories awaits next Sunday. For now, press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject. But we
1: will see you on the flip side.